0: We made this. Welcome back everyone to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and television and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm your host, Tony Black.
1: And I'm Sean Wilson.
0: And in this episode, the first of a two-part look at the film music of February 2022, we discuss the music of composers including Ludwig Jorenson, the great John Williams, Theodore Shapiro and more. And we're going to start with... A Little bit of a new story as we've tried to do in our new format, Sean, of our two part a month format. Um, and uh, there's a couple of little bits of news, but we're, we're going to talk about today. But we'll, we'll start with the big one, which is that the Oscars are at it again, aren't they? This month,
1: yeah, they are, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Choosing it, it, to
0: downgrade certain categories, uh, from the actual main ceremony and uh, like pre record acceptance speeches and things like that and then insert them in and one of these sadly includes best score
1: so what do you make of this it's the oscars isn't it so it's a crock of crap anyway so <laughs> i mean it, it it just goes to show doesn't it that how much they it, a lot of the the categories they they've done this for are, are the technical categories including best score so it shows what they really think of technicians and artists within the movies I mean, to be honest, this year's Oscars are already badly compromised for a number of reasons. One, we're still in the middle of an ongoing pandemic, despite the fact that people are pretending that, that it's gone away, but it hasn't. And, you know, the the battle should be to get people back into the into the cinemas to see the movies that have been nominated. That's the most important thing. There's no point nominating movies that people won't haven't watched and aren't inclined to watch, though obviously a lot of them are on streaming as well, like The Power of the Dogs. So that's one thing. So the redundancy of the Oscars is even more pronounced. This year, point two, um, they nominated June for ten Oscars, but didn't nominate Denis Villeneuve uh, for Best Director, which undercuts everything. That undercuts everything else they've nominated for. It's like, I think that just exposes the Oscar snobbery towards sci-fi. It's like, all right, yeah, we'll give it, we'll give it a load of nominations. So, we're not, we're not going to suggest there was one singular artist responsible for threading everything together. No, we're loath if we're going to do that because we're not going to give the sci-fi genre that kind of credibility. So, bunch of wankers. Really? Um, absolute <laughs> wankers. Um, so yeah, really, are, I was already really depressed by the Oscars this year before the news that they weren't going to televise Best Original Score. Nothing about it surprises me. I mean, let's be honest, the Oscar voters never know what they're doing. I mean, uh, you know, the Best Original Score category is one that has gone badly wrong many, many times in the past. As in, like, when they, they give someone the award, it's like, you what? Like, w- why have you given that person it? You know, like, the, the year that, um, you know, I, I, 2004, I think it was, when you had the likes of John Williams nominated for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and they gave it to um, The Motorcycle Diaries, which, don't get me wrong, that's one of my favourite films of all time, but the music is one of the least interesting parts of it. I mean, there's a bit of twangy Spanish guitar in it, and the Oscar voters obviously listened to it, thought, oh, well, that's twangy and atmospheric, let's give it the Oscar. And it's just like, no. Just no. It's if the music doesn't commentate on the action in an interesting way, it does not deserve an award.
0: It's funny you should say this because John John Burlingame, who many listeners of this fantastic journalist, best
1: best film music journalist around, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. He's fab. He he wrote an article recently for Variety, which was called "Rethink Your Attitude." To about mu- about music scores, note to Motion Picture Academy. And uh, in it, he says this, and you're talking about Williams and and these things. He says, as Steven Spielberg once said of John Williams' score for Jaws, the score was clearly responsible for half the success of that movie. That moment in the 1975 Oscar cast, with the audience understanding and cheering the music that scared them out of the water that year, is legendary. I have to believe that Spielberg, now on his 29th collaboration, The Fablemans, with the with the now 90-year-old composer would not have agreed with this decision. And that says it all, doesn't it? In that yeah. you get a reaction like that at a ceremony like this for a piece of iconic music. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that the the music nominated for the Oscars this year is necessarily iconic. And it might be that we talk about the winners in the um, in future episode, actually. We might well have to revisit this and see who wins because the Oscars will have been done and dusted by the time we probably do our next batch of episodes. But... It, it's not the point, is it? You know, it, it's a key. It is a key part of what makes a lot of these films so special. And so, to actually sort of relegate it and make it, what, and not just score, but many of these other categories that have just been relegated because there is a general assumption that they're just not going to pull in audiences is ridiculous. And it doesn't matter if it's more niche, you know, than and some of the bigger things. It is part of the process. And if if you actually want to make the Oscars appeal to everybody you have to include these aspects you know I, i'd be surprised if many filmmakers think this is a good idea really
1: i mean the whole point of the oscars is you celebrate everything it's the one night in in the hollywood calendar where every single facet of the filmmaking team is celebrated that's the idea of it and yeah the level of ignorance again it's not just best original score that's been singled out there are several other categories that won't be televised as well it's a real shame um it just shows that the Oscar voters have become increasingly untethered from from reality and from, you know, any kind of relevance. I mean, I, I don't hold truck with the Oscars anyway. I very rarely agree with them. I mean, you know, a, a, the quality of a movie is not measured by the amount of awards that it gets or doesn't get. You know, a good movie and a good film score will stand on its own regardless of whether it's nominated for or even wins an Oscar. So really, it's all—it's all, it's all fairly—it's all fairly trivial. I think it's further—it's further compounded by the fact that, you know, in the wake of the ongoing pandemic, the Oscars has been exposed as being even more trivial than usual. And it's—it is—it is a shame because there are some very very fine scores nominated this year. I mean, Nicholas Bratel for "Don't Look Up," which I we, we spoke about that on our 2021 roundup, which I think is a superb score it's really really nice to see Alberto Iglesias nominated for Parallel Mothers because as I understand it I don't think he's been nominated before but he works with Pedro Almodovar you know regularly so it's a pity that you know the the work of these artists isn't going to be broadcast and championed in the way that it should but um you know I think that yeah to, to not televise it shows a fundamental ignorance towards the artistry and the craft that's involved with it but you know, it's the Oscars. What can I say?
0: No, I know, I know, and yeah, fuck them, basically. <laughs> exactly, that. exactly. That, yeah, that will sum up everyone who loves film music's, you know, response. So, yeah. um yeah, I won't be watching it anyway because I don't stay up and watch them if I'm honest. Um, even no, if no
1: I, neither do even I. No,
0: I mean I'm at work anyway <laughs> the next day, but I can't be asked. We've, we've that. got, we've got lives.
1: We've got lives to live. To be honest, exactly. so, Yeah, yeah. It's just plus. You know,
0: the last time I did try and do that when I wasn't working in a school where obviously it's difficult to book a day off when I did book a day off and do that I I fell asleep by (laughs) 10pm on the night woke up at 8 in the morning on a day I'd booked off to sleep because I was going to sleep watch the Oscars and I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs>
1: please, please tell me you then made the most of that day off, did you? I did.
0: I did. did I had a great time. I watched yeah, yeah. about five movies. <laughs> really, I just thought, yeah. I'm going to have a movie day. Um, yeah, but yeah, so I probably actually probably worked out for the best, to be honest. Anyway, let's move on from uh, Absolute Rubbish to Absolute Rubbish, which is our first film, because we were talking <laughs> about Moonfall.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so... We're gonna we're gonna do as we as we did last month, and we're gonna do two uh, February uh, episodes talking various scores. But uh, we're gonna start with Moonfall. So our general overarching theme this month is disaster movie scores. So you've you've got a pick you're going to talk about in this episode. I've got a pick I'm going to talk about in the next episode, and we chose this theme because of Moonfall, which frankly is a disaster movie in every sense of the word. <laughs> Have you you haven't seen you haven't had the pleasure yet, have you, Sean? I don't think, of seeing Moon Moonfall.
1: Pleasure being a euphemistic term. Um I mean I I, <laughs> I, I I haven't seen it, but I've had it described to me, so in a way I kinda of feel like I have seen it. Um so and we'll we'll just here's here's a little here's a descriptive thing that was presented to me. So people are involved in a car chase with the moon that's what I've been told. So I'm like, well, I don't need to see the movie now. So I know ex- exactly what to expect. People have a car chase with the moon. Like,
0: <laughs> Esse- essentially, in many ways. It's yeah. it's like a, it's a car chase in the middle of a blizzard as the moon is crashing to the earth. Uh, it it, 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 it's, it is exactly as crazy as it sounds
1: how how um, i have so many questions just about that how if the moon has crashed your atmosphere how is that car still operating by the normal laws of physics how is that car on the ground how are the people still alive i mean i have so many questions about that but i imagine that's the least of the film's problems right well, so,
0: i will forward them to uh roland emmerich phd yeah uh,
1: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah who will answer who, the question the director who suggested that all oh, the great global freeze in the day after tomorrow can be staved off by burning books in a log fireplace. Um, so, yeah, the, the great scientist that is Roland Emmerich. Yeah. <laughs> well, I,
0: what can you say about that? I mean, yeah, yes, this is obviously Roland Emmerich's latest cinematic experience, which, <laughs> I mean, in, in many ways, like, I suppose you would have had plenty of pulpy science fiction novels write about a situation similar to this because this also this, this just doesn't just involve the moon crashing it involves the scientific concepts of megastructures and dyson spheres and all of these bananas like conspiracy theories
1: not james um, oh, dyson I, no dyson spheres no, not no. james dyson Although he's I, not, he's, I, wouldn't, he's not I wouldn't mind putting
0: <laughs> well I wouldn't mind putting him on the in him on the moon to be honest but that,
1: that's where um, he's gone in it after Brexit <laughs> exactly yeah he might as well be yeah
0: No, it has these fantastic... Just to point out, every conspiracy theory in this movie is true, by the way. It is one of those films, right? It has literally a conspiracy theorist who is proven right every time he says anything. So it is one of those films that is insane. It's not so bad it's good, if I'm honest. It's just bad. (laughs) It is just bad. However, it is in some way likeable. It's it's not as it's not as awful as some of these terrible movies are, and I, I don't quite. I might might be that you know Patrick Wilson is always watchable, Halle Berry is always watchable. It has Donald Sutherland pop up for like a five-minute cameo in a wheelchair where he describes the whole moon landing conspiracy. <laughs> and do, does, does of the
1: voice. moon then land on his head and kill him? Or is that what he's going to eat for five minutes? Well, that would be, be spoiling <laughs> the, the spoiler, plot, short, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know? Don't want to ruin the plot for you. Yeah. Also, um, um, I've got a question. So apparently John Bradley's megastructuralist in this... He goes to space and he has IBS. Is that right? That's what I've heard as well. So he, yeah. he goes to space and he has IBS. He's willing to put a space suit yeah. on and he has irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. right. That's just that's just baffling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh yeah. There's, there's, there is, if you're looking for logic, you're in the wrong place here. Just... That should be the tagline. Um... <laughs> if, if you're looking for logic, go elsewhere. <laughs>
0: go elsewhere. <laughs> you will not find it in Moonfall. So the film is... Bobbins. But do do we think do we think the score is? I mean, this is by uh his regular collaborators, Thomas Wonder and Harold Closer. And uh what did you make of this independent of the movie then, Sean? Did this do anything for you?
1: No. I thought it was really, really disappointing. <laughs> um and it's funny, for all the deranged craziness that you've described to me, it's it's really surprising that the score is as bland as it is. And as forgettable as, and this is further compounded. The disappointment is further compounded by the fact that Roland Emmerich once worked with David Arnold, and he's also worked with John Williams. What on earth is going on? Roland Emmerich used to have really, really good musical intuition in his movies up until the late nineties, early two thousands. Because obviously he worked with Arnold on Stargate, Independence Day, and Godzilla. Then with John Williams on the Patriot, they he fell out with with David Arnold around the Patriot. That's why they apparently that that's why they got John Williams in to do it. Hasn't worked with David Arnold since. And like, what on earth? What what a kind of degrading in quality this is. I mean, there is no personality in it. And, you know, what you've just described is one of the most insane sounding movies ever. And you would think that the the score would have a kind of outsized, knowingly, kind of deliberately ripe orchestral sensibility to go with it. It's really dull, don't you think?
0: Yeah, it's It's really bland. It's really generic. I thought there were moments of, you know, space-based, wonder i guess you know and it a level of expansiveness at times to the score but very in, in very short supply it's re- it's really boring it's it's really boring Consider, you know i'll give moonfall that it is never boring like it's never dull it is it is too bonkers to be dull you know it's too it's too insane really and it, and it just keeps everything going at fast pace and you leap from one ludicrous situation to the next so it's never boring, but the music is just really quite bland. You do think, we, well, you know, I mean, maybe he's just burnt a lot of these bridges or maybe it's that people like Arnold and Williams are like, I ain't working for him anymore. Are you kidding? Like, yeah, you know, they're, they're too busy working with actually talented directors, you know, people like Spielberg or whatever. Like, are they... You know, but then, then having said that, look at the shitheads that Jerry Goldsmith. Hey, bingo! I got in there first.
1: You got there that time, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Look look how crap. How many crap directors he worked with, and he still produced brilliant scores. So you know, Well,
1: well, that's it, isn't it? Jerry Goldsmith always went above and beyond. Jerry Goldsmith injected so much personality into the lousiest of movies, and in this, it's like the composers can't actually be bothered to inject any personality either. That, or it's not their fault. It's actually the director who's told them, look don't inject any personality. I want this really anonymous rumbling post Hans Zimmer, post remote control studios score with no personality on it. It's a real, it's a real shame. It's a real shame. I mean, I, d- I just don't understand. I mean, David Arnold was supposed to work on the Patriot and apparently he submitted some demos and then they said, no, you know, they didn't want to. I mean, the exact details of what happened there haven't ever been articulated, but the result was they brought John Williams on and John Williams was, I think Oscar nominated for the Patriot, but it's just it's such a shame to see a director kind of chicken out of those musical instincts because independence day had one of the greatest scores of the 1990s yeah, it was just easily De- dean devlin the co-writer and co-producer of independence day with whom emmerich has worked regularly said that you can trust a brit as in david arnold's come up with the most risingly over top and over the top American <laughs> score ever and and it's true and that score yeah. fitted the film like a glove and it's brilliant it to did. listen to independently and what 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 happened, Roland? With your music, what happened? <laughs> it's really, like, yeah. yeah.
0: I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? It is weird because you could have given Moonfall a really a quite beautifully mad score or something really quite melodic, and it it could have gone down as one of those great scores for a terrible movie. But no, it's just boring. Well, it's, it's boring.
1: It's, it's it's interesting because yeah, I, on my um other, we made this. Network podcast that I do frame to frame with with Andy Williams. Um we recently reviewed um Batman and Robin. Yes, we had to rewatch Batman and Robin for our sins. <laughs> oh my so God. you know it's amazing I'm still sane as I'm recording this episode, frankly. <laughs> um but one of the things about that was that's a utterly ridiculous movie. It's kind of knowingly ridiculous. It's not very good, but at least it's knowingly ridiculous. But Elliot Goldenthal, the composer is clearly scored the movie in this roaringly over-the-top way understanding that it's ridiculous so that's a composer recognizing that the project he's being faced with isn't very good so let's try and sort of ramp up the, the 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 personality of the music to cartoonish to an increasingly cartoonish level and it works that's one of the best things about batman and robin and i'm just thinking there seems to be a bit of a missed opportunity here with with Moonfall. Incidentally, I should say that Andy told me he went to go and see Moonfall in 4DX, as in with the moving seats in the <laughs> sense, and, and he had an amazing time with it. I bet he so did. It just, yeah. I bet he
0: did. That that car yeah. chase bit he would he would have be been like. It's surprising he didn't go to the moon at that point because he would have been all <laughs> over the seat. I oh, tell you,
1: his reaction afterwards. He'd been to the moon and back. He was absolutely delighted with with, with the with the experience of watching it in 4DX. So, I was like. Mate, what a waste of an evening. Like, you could have well, gone and watched anything. <laughs> like, it's just, like, really. But,
0: like, <laughs> proving, though, the best way to experience Moonfall is to have water thrown in your face yes, and yeah, wind yeah, exactly. blasted in your face. It, it's the you whole know?
1: Will, William Castle. You know when William Castle did, like, the tingler and yeah. you had, like, the seats, like, electrified? Yeah. It's a gimmick. Like, the, the only <laughs> yeah. way to enjoy this movie is with with really silly throwaway gimmicks because that's obviously what the kind of film that it is, right, based on what you've said. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I worry I'm making it sound too appealing. Like, (laughs) like, it really isn't good. Like, it really isn't worth watching. Like, please don't get someone to throw a bucket of water over your head and blast you with a hairdryer. It's not worth it, guys.
1: Homemade 40X. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Don't electrocute yourself,
0: kids. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a disclaimer. We'll put that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. That's a disclaimer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, let's move on to a a score that's actually good, right? Bugger off, Moonfall. We're done. So let's talk about, you mentioned it earlier, Parallel Mothers by Alberto Iglesias, which has been nominated for an Oscar. And um, this is the latest Pedro Almodovar film starring Penélope Cruz. And this is, am I right in thinking this is his first uh, English language movie? Have I got that right?
1: Um, the parts of it are in English. Apparently, his first English language movie is going to be his next one with Kate Blanchett. As ah, I understand it, that that one's okay. coming afterwards. I think, if I remember right. rightly, there were little sections of *Parallel Mothers* in English, but not that much. It's largely in Spanish. Okay, okay, um, I've got that wrong then.
0: But what, yeah, uh, you've seen this movie,
1: right? I've seen this, yeah, and it's it's. I mean, typically, Pedro Almodovar, it's a it's sort of strange mixture of kind of like overcooked sort of spanish telenova sort of melodramatic style with kind of hitchcockian undercurrents largely accentuated by the music from Alberto Iglesias who has worked with Bar going right the way back to the um, sort of late 90, late 1980s and maybe even before that they are long standing collaborators and you know it's great to see a director sort of fostering that kind of loyalty with their composer that's always really gratifying you mentioned John Williams and Steven Spielberg earlier In fact, you know, the collaboration between Almodovar and Iglesias has been going for a very, very long time as well. So, you know, it's good to see there is loyalty within the film industry. You know, while while the Oscars might be interested in ditching, um, you know, know, ditching the um, best original score category from their broadcast, it's good to see that filmmakers will advocate loyalty towards their composers, which is really satisfying. So yeah, so Penelope Cruz um, delivering a really, really great performance as a um, a, a photographer called um, called Janice, who gets pregnant as a result of of a, of a sort of union with this um, forensic archaeologist. So while she's in the hospital, she shares a um, a hospital room with Anna, who's a, who's in stark contrast to to Janice, is a teenage single mother. And both Janice and Anna give birth at the same time. Um, However, They go their separate ways, but they decide to keep in touch with each other based on the fact that they both got pregnant and they both delivered their babies at the same, at the same moment. And what then happens is a typically ripe, overwrought, fairly convoluted story about, you know, mistaken identity and and gender roles. And typically, in typical Almodovar fashion, it's done in bright primary colours. This is what Almodovar does. So it's kind of knowingly over the top, but satirical at the same moment. And it's also, there is a rather unconvincing political subplot tied to Spain's haunted civil war past which kind of doesn't really work. that that's kind of sort of awkwardly forced in there which for me didn't really work but Penelope Cruz is is really is really really um terrific as as one would expect she she's done career best work with Almodóvar before and things like Volver and um the score is actually really really interesting i mean for a movie in which you've basically got characters who you know, two characters from different sides of the tracks who are kind of brought together by circumstance in hospital, and hostile, then they decide to keep in touch. And then, you know, there's various um conflicts around, you know, who, who's whose baby is is who and, and and things like that. And the the score actually does a good job of using like what sounds like a chamber sized orchestra, it's not a big orchestral score, it's a kind of chamber sized Bernard Herman esque, kind of like jabbing, um, quite un- unsettled score. That kind of pricks away at the kind of the verbal and intercharacter dynamics in in the movie. I think it's definitely a score that you have to see in context to understand how it accentuates the various tensions between the characters. Because very often it's it's not entirely harmonious. It doesn't really go in for for melody. It does use these very high register strings to create you know an atmosphere that I suppose is at once whimsical yet also uncomfortable at the same moment. I mean, I think there are also like vague jazz overtones as well. The idea that Janice um, Penelope Cruz's character is from the kind of like upper social strata; she's she's relatively like sort of more sophisticated. And I think it's kind of it's it's playing it's playing in it's playing into that as well. Um, Jan- Janice
0: I'm, is a bit of an odd name, isn't it, for a, a, a glamorous Spanish?
1: Woman. Yeah, yeah. She yeah feels yeah, like it she is. should
0: be behind the counter at Poundland in Wigan.
1: <laughs> you know, help Janice. Maybe that was put in the original script. <laughs> that's, that's, that's when
0: Ken Loach remakes it. That's what. That's what it will be.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe that. <laughs> maybe that's what our mode of our first English language movie is going to be. <laughs> pa- so paral- can... Parallel, mums. parallel mams. Parallel mams. That will be. Hey, lad, Ian Wigan, hey, lad. You heard it here
0: first. That's going to be the remake. No, um, <laughs> yeah. it, it is quite, it is quite jazzy. I I found it quite sexy, actually. I thought it was quite a sexy yeah. score in places. You're right. It is strange. It does have. I think that Herman-esque jabbing thing is absolutely true. But I I, re- I I enjoyed the listen. Actually, I mean, I've not seen the movie, but I I I got something out of this as as an independent listen. I thought it was. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was. Like I say, quite alluring, quite weird, but strangely sort of drew me in, actually. So I, I I can kind of see why this has been nominated for an Oscar, this one.
1: It it adds a lot of personality to the movie, and yeah, you're right, it does have an air of like subtle eroticism about it, because that's what art does. You know, art's films are very, very upfront about sexuality, particularly about female sexuality, and I think the use of the strings creates that humanizing element because you know the pitch of, of of the strings with you know the very often strings are one of the few instruments that can go microtonal as in between between the notes of the diatonic scale, and there you can get so much nuance out of strings and you can communicate so much on an implicit emotional level and it really, it do, it does speak to the characters, I think very well, but this is something that Iglesias has done repeatedly for, for um, Almodovar. If you think of like The Skin I Live In or Volver that I mentioned earlier, you know, they, they do have this. Very, I mean, I really, really liked their collaboration on um, Julieta, which is Almodovar's film from I think 2016, I think that was. Um, that's my favourite of Almodovar's recent um, movies. It, it, it didn't really get the attention that the subsequent film got Pain and Glory, which had Antonio Banderas in it but I thought Julieta was very, very moving, and I thought that Iglesias's score for that was really quite sumptuous. Again, it, that was more the romantic Herman, the kind of ghost of Mrs. Muir side of Bernard Herman came out in that one, because that was more of a moving, like melancholic story, whereas Parallel Mothers is a bit more prickly and spiky. It's not necessarily... it. What, the movie wants to be more emotional than it is, but I think for the most, particularly with the you know that political undertow, as I said, but for the most part... It's about these two women who come together and then end up kind of verbally circling each other and trying to sort of work each other out there from different sides of the social strata. You know, there's lots of revelations that come out around, like, you know, various characters. So I think the slightly prickly nature of the score works in, in the film, less so on album. I'd say it sounds like you got more out of the album than I did, but I think it's good to see that it's been Oscar nominated.
0: Mm, yeah, I don't th- think it's going to win. But no. well, I think you know, yeah, I, I I like the fact it's championing a score like this because I mean, it uh, is a little bit off kilter.
1: I do wonder if if Iglesias is the first ever Spanish composer to be nominated. No, he's not, is he? Because the composer I mentioned, the Motorcycle Diaries, earlier, um, the composer of that won the Oscar, didn't he? I believe he was a Spanish composer. as Well, I might have to go and look that up while we talk over our next one. Actually, I don't.
0: Uh, <laughs> I, don't yes. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, you you do that while I talk about Star Wars <laughs> because I think you, you get you'll be more bit, interested. I'll do this. <laughs> yes. um, well, yeah. The next one is the Book of Boba Fett, which is TV, obviously, uh, scored by Ludwig jorensen and Joseph Shirley, which is a name I'm not massively familiar with. If I'm honest, I've not really come across him before. But um, this is obviously the Disney Plus spin-off from The Mandalorian, Um, although I'll get into why it's not really a spin-off and it's more a... I, don't know, I actually don't know what the fuck this is, <laughs> if I'm honest, and I'll explain I, why in a minute. I've heard this um,
1: described as the Book of Bobbins Fett. Is that right? Bo- it's not really, is that not very good? Like, is, is...
0: The Book of Bobbins Fett, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's Because it's, it's not very good at all, no. And the Book <laughs> of the Mandalorian, frankly, is what it should be called because I've never seen a TV show, Sean, in my life Get four or five episodes into a seven episode season and then suddenly become the show that it span off from. Like literally, Boba Fett is not in it for two episodes at all. And it's called The Book of Boba Fett. Yeah. Well, I'll tell a lie. He's in one of the two for about two minutes and he doesn't say anything. (laughs) The rest of it is The Mandalorian story. Like it's literally, they took the first two episodes of the third series of The Mandalorian to come, and they made it in the middle of the book of Boba Fett. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Oh, and I just, just been... you know,
1: the cynicism is strong with this one, I think. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, yeah, yeah. Well,
0: I mean, it's it's the height of... And I wrote this, when I wrote a review of the Boba Fett, I wrote about this. It's the height for me of made-for-IP television, completely. Mm. In that they literally don't get... They don't respect the audience enough... To, for them to to think that actually we might not like even though The Mandalorian is a perfectly good show maybe in a show about Boba Fett a completely different character well sort of a completely different character it's all the same kind of thing really I mean these you know it even looks and sounds very similar but even in the middle of that we wouldn't appreciate the character we're following being completely subsumed by the character that we I mean it is it is un, un, I've never seen anything like it and I, in a way I hope I never see anything like it again and I don't <laughs> I don't mean this in a complimentary way about I've never seen anything like the reason I've never seen this before is that it's the terrible fucking idea that nobody's done. And and it, it, it may it means I mean the show has absolutely no impetus anyway. It spends four episodes doing sweet fuck all and then you then suddenly it becomes another show and then it ends okay, you know, fair enough, it's not too bad, but it a really bizarre experiment. However However Cracking Score, I would say overall now split into two parts now what they did with the mandalorian was which i think was primarily all scored by Jorensen, but i think he's taken a bit more of a back seat here by the sound of it and shirley has done the lion's share of the work and joranson has done the theme tune in a few bits and bobs which is fair enough he's busy he's doing black panther 2 various other things he has done tenet all these other things so it's still it's still a good score but with the mandalorian that had so much music brought out it must have been like four or five different chunks or of of per one or two episodes and i found it a bit much i found it a bit too much i was a bit like i don't need all this because it's relatively similar like what you're giving me whereas here what they've done is they've condensed it into two scores for two different sections of the so the first one episodes one to four and then maybe episodes through six five to seven or whatever I think that works a little bit better. It's not too much music, but it's enough to get your teeth into. And it is very similar to The Mandalorian. Very similar. But I, I actually quite like this score a little bit more. It's got some it's got some interesting kind of it's got I think it's got a good motif running through it for Boba Fett. It's got some interesting chanting sort of choral stuff like hey, 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 it's quite, it's quite tribal, which I liked. It's it's just got a good mixture of of of, of music, good action beats. So it's got the typical Mandalorian thing running through. um, And I really like this very Western, space Western style of scoring and soundtrack that they've put on for both of these shows. But they are very much of a piece. You could literally put the Boba Fett stuff into the Mandalorian stuff and you probably wouldn't see the join for the most part, which might be a criticism for some, but I think it works well in the fact that they are very connected shows. Too connected. <laughs> Um, but I really like it. I think I, th- I think I think it's good stuff. You haven't seen this, Sean. I think the show. So where do you sit with this music?
1: Yeah. So I've got to appreciate the music on its own terms. I mean, firstly, I completely agree with you that we're we're in an era of complete overkill with these album releases for these TV shows. On on with you on that. I mean, I was completely overwhelmed with the mandalorian i mean i remember back in the 90s where you couldn't get jerry goldsmith albums that were longer than 30 minutes due to like (laughs) you know sort of licensing issues and everything and now you're getting like literally like sort of four or five albums of these you know soundtracks with an hour on it's it's just it's too much like what i want is a really really well curated well edited presentation of some of the music in the show select enough of the music to give me an idea of the show's personality and overall arc but don't give me everything because like you say it gets very very repetitive and you kind of you can't see the wood for the trees ultimately i mean as i as i understand it there's only two albums for the book of boba fett whereas there were how many or i don't know how many there were for the mandalorian but is that right yeah, yeah that's it
0: there's two yeah it splits it into two parts of the season but yeah it's, um, it's better that's much much more like what we should be getting It's it's not the odd track here and there it's a good selection of music for this
1: I mean, it's still it's still too much. I mean, I still don't think it's necessary. I think just one album that curates the best tracks and just edit, it should be edited together, maybe not in not in the chronological order of the show because you don't have to do that with a soundtrack album, maybe arrange it out of chronological order. Just give me an impression of what the narrative of the show is and the emotional. I don't need everything because I, I do get a bit bored. I do get a bit bogged down, but... I mean, what I have heard of it is 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 very very good. I mean, it 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 clearly picks up the the tonal mantle of the Mandalorian, isn't it? Which is, it's got that slightly dirty sampled like Western feel to it, which I always thought was interesting in the Mandalorian. I know a lot of people criticised it, and they said, well. It's veering too far away from John Williams' traditional Star Wars tone. To be honest, Star Wars has been going for so long now that I quite like the idea of doing an experimental Star Wars score. Who's to say the score can't go flying off into a different galaxy, right? I'm I'm with that. I understand the principles of that. And Boba Fett picks it up. I mean... Thematically, I suppose it's a little bit nebulous. I mean, there is that Boba Fett theme in there. Um, It takes a while to be teased out. And, you know, you've got the used percussion and, yeah, like you said, the grunting like male voice choir, which is interesting. Um, I think that just, you know, simply sort of offloading everything onto the listener is not the best way to represent the music in a series like this. I think you know it needs to be much more rigorously edited and presented i mean this is kind of going beyond the music now this is going into more of an industrial sort of observation now about where we are with film music now i mean the fact that for example thomas newman's new score dog doesn't even get an album release yeah um, what's that about i know, I know. And, and and there are two albums for the book of boba fett well obviously because it's disney isn't it right it's disney plus of course the the marketing budget behind this will have been absolutely enormous in the way that it probably wasn't on on dog But, I mean, I find... The whole to go on to the series itself. This is really falling into self-parody now. This whole fan service Star Wars thing. I mean, next thing you know, you're going to hear about oh, Luke Skywalker's hat stand is going to get like a bloody backstory or or something like that. And it's like they have hat stands in the in the the future. I don't know, but
0: well, bear in mind, bear in mind that Poirot's mustache recently got a backstory. So (laughs) anything's possible. We'll come to that later in the the next episode.
1: (laughs) It's, It's just it's so indicative of where we are now as a culture. The fact that people think explicable means good no it doesn't the whole point about Boba Fett in in the original Star Wars because obviously we're both of an age to remember growing up with the original Star Wars trilogy right before all this stuff kicked off Boba Fett didn't make very many appearances he had no backstory that's why he was appealing he didn't really do very much he was just kind of there in the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi but you could invent your backstory for him now they think that by making the backstory explicable that that somehow makes it more entertaining. I mean, clearly, what it's, they've done that to rinse more money out of people, and that's why they've done it. And
0: Honestly, though, you, if you think after the end of Book of Boba Fett, you know more about Boba Fett, you really don't. Like they haven't even done it in this. Like it, it literally really? does. It does. Yeah, for the most part, he does all, really, and it, and, the, <laughs> and it's all it's all set after Return of the Jedi. Anyway, so like it's it's all just it's all about. How did he get out that pit he fell into? Which, frankly, he should have stayed in. Oh, the Sarlacc shit, pit, shit, yeah, 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 the Sarlacc pit, and they completely don't do uh, the story that I thought they might do—a a, a, quasi sort of biblical r- out of the pit reborn story, which they sort of suggest they might, but then they don't. And he he literally just wanders around a town, talking, talking in a very. D- very low-key Australian accent <laughs> because it's Tamira Morrison, <laughs> right, with his mascot. Who,
1: who, who's and a great actor. Tamira Morrison's a great yeah, actor. But who's he's this?
0: got... He's so boring in this because he's just given nothing to do. Like, uh, and uh, it's... is it, 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 There is really no point to any of it except money. And granted, yes, you could say that about any of this IP stuff. You could say that about The Mandalorian, to be fair. But The Mandalorian, at least is trying to actually... It's like you said about the music. The reason that music is is great for them pretty good for the most part is because it is different it's because it doesn't just recycle the space fantasy stuff from star wars because it isn't that show that the the mandalorian and the book of boba fett is not space fantasy like the skywalker saga it's not it's a space western and it's presented very much in those terms and yeah okay it's got a baby yoda in there and it's got and in this show in this score there are callbacks to the empire strikes back because you do Spoilers, you do get Luke Skywalker in we're in on Canny Valley on ter- canny yeah. valley territory in that it's a young Mark Hamill and it's not Mark Hamill's voice, even though he's still alive. Don't even get me started on that. <laughs> don't they used an algorithm, right? Don't don't even oh, get me started. No. Right? Um, so yeah. Uh but you you so you do have William's stuff weaved in a little bit at points because they basically just redo the Dagobah sequence, but it's this time it's Luke teaching baby Yoda, basically. That's a whole major part of an episode of Boba Fett. But it's got nothing to do with Boba Fett. I mean, it's, like, it's yeah. just mental. Well,
1: it's it's, it's you funny know? because, you know, you mentioned the idea of like this sort of the, the, the the biblical nature of the reborn being sequenced when he comes out of the silent pit. The music on the first album certainly suggests that. It's got an air of portent about it, almost like yeah. religious portent. So clearly the music was pointing me in a direction, me not having seen the series. The music was pointing me in a certain direction and you've said, oh no. It doesn't actually go in that direction no, dramatically at all. No, <laughs> no.
0: It just he just becomes a crime boss in on Tatooine, attempting to sort of you know win the day with the other crime bosses. That's basically it. And then you know it. It's not even worth going into depth about unless you're a. Me- I mean, it, we've got a Star Wars podcast on this po- network, and we made this called The Way, and it, they are mega Star Wars fans. They know their shit, and even they didn't like it. So this this has got no chance.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the 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 idea of the idea of Star Wars music was was and still is and forever will be defined by John Williams. But there have been other people that have come in and tweet with it. You think Joel McNeely with Shadows of the Empire, which is a really really good overlooked Star Wars score. You've got my personal favourite of the recent Star Wars scores, which is Solo: A Star Wars Story by John Powell, which is absolutely magnificent, and that. That is that that picks up the baton of the Williams harmonics and runs with it and takes it to the nth degree. That's one of my favourite blockbuster scores of the last 20 years because that's what you expect Star Wars to sound like as mediated through a composer other than John Williams, though obviously John Williams did do the Han Solo theme. So, and whereas I I like the principle of the Mandalorian in the book of Boba Fett, the idea of you make it sound different because you're dealing with the underworld. You're dealing with something that's got grit under the fingernails, but it's a shame. It sounds like the, you know, for all the intelligence in the music, it sounds like it's bolted to a series. that doesn't really deserve such music.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely the case. Yeah. So, definitely worth listening to, though. Definitely worth listening to. And speaking of uh, of Williams, um, we're going to talk about... Uh, you've picked him as as part of your disaster movie choice. But Before we do, it's worth uh, pointing out a little bit of news that came out this week is that Williams is actually scoring the main theme for the next big Star Wars show coming out in May, which is the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, starring you McGregor, back as Obi-Wan. Set, again, much like Bob- Boba Fett and The Mandalorian, set after a previous Star Wars movie. I think in this case, it's after Revenge of the Sith though. So it's probably about 30 years earlier. So between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope and all that. So, I mean, you know, that's bringing back Darth Vader. And it, I mean, that that is a, I mean, it could be good, right? It could I, I'm hopeful it will be good, right? I really am. Because, you know, there's every possibility it might. The Mandalorian's a good show. The Book of Boba Fett isn't, but there's every chance Kenobi might be but again it, it doesn't need to exist at all like it's sketching it's in yeah. a, a a story that we didn't need you know that that but but what, what do you reckon to that news i mean williams obviously still he's still going quite strong you know he's doing the indiana jones score he's doing the fablemans as we mentioned he's scoring i mean if the if the, if the piece he did for solo is anything to go by. This could be a treat, couldn't it? What he does. Yeah, for this?
1: because because Obi Wan Kenobi didn't really get his own theme, did he really? Although I suppose you could say the for- the force theme was kinda of applied to, to many, many different characters simultaneously, including centrally Obi Wan Kenobi. But yeah, the idea that that he's giving Kenobi his own theme is really great. Just like Han Solo didn't have a theme before John Williams composed one for Solo as Star Wars stories. So that was that was big when that when that happened um yeah, really exciting. I mean it's tremendous. I mean um I mean here's here's a little humble braggler. I'm seeing John Williams in concert in April in New York. So Wow um, Yeah Wow, wow god, I mean, whoa, 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 it, whoa, whoa. It, well,
0: Hey, you, you going to new york amazing yeah. amazing yeah. where how when why
1: where tell me more. what's, tell good, me more. what's going on what's going on yeah, yeah. Um, at, at the carnegie hall he's hosting <gasps> a um a charity Whoa! gala concert with um the violinist um Anne sophie mutter for whom he's composed a new violin concerto so they will together be bringing the violin concerto for the audience but he will also be performing several of his most not- noteworthy um Scores, <laughs> several of his most noteworthy scores. Which <laughs> ones do you pick? Right, <laughs> they're all noteworthy. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, wow. I, I don't, I don't imagine he'll be premiering the Kenobi theme. I don't imagine he'll be doing anything like that. Well, maybe. Well, I don't know. It depends if he's if he's composed it by then. But, I mean, yeah. I mean, oh. talk about a bucket list one, right? Oh, I mean, mate, that this...
0: is amazing. Like not only, yeah. not only John Williams, but New York and Carnegie Hall. Yeah, yeah. You know, this... you've obviously practiced a lot
1: you know <laughs> it's, um, um yeah i mean it, wow. it, it's him on home turf he's back in new york because he's from <clears> queens you know john williams so that that's nice to know that you know seeing him back on back yeah. on home turf so that's he, tr- yeah.
0: truly fantastic because dare i say it, he's not going to be around forever now no. so to actually get to see this while he's still recording he's still going i mean that he's a, a wonderful amazing i'm so i mean Happy, happy for you. A bit jealous, but happy for you, mate. Yeah,
1: That's brilliant. thanks. Yeah. Well, I did read an interview with, with with Williams. I think I think he was quoted in Variety. I can't remember if it was John Burlingame or not. But John Williams himself said that probably after Indiana Jones 5 and The Fablemans, he's going to step away from writing music for film because even he acknowledged that it's become really political. He's like, it's become really political. It's become really challenging. And at his age he doesn't want to operate within that space. He wants to write music, but he doesn't want to write music under the under the constraints, under the auspices of somebody else, whether it's a producer, a franchise, a director, or whatever. And that was very sobering to think, wow, even John Williams is saying that. I mean, it shows the pressures on the industry as the industry advances. I mean, I suppose in a way, it's good that we're getting music for the Book of Boba Fett like this. It's good that we're getting these soundtrack albums. Out. At least the music is being presented. There's too much of it. But I think, you know, I suppose that's encouraging, but it's it's very, very sobering and quite melancholy to think that even John Williams is gonna step away from the industry that helped define him. Um yeah, but, that is yeah.
0: But what a shame. I mean the uh, but that that's that's wonderful though. Absolutely wonderful. My um my runner-up prize is that I'm going to see with Mrs. Black, I'm going to see Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship at the Ring of the Royal Albert Hall in May. Hey. My- with Amazing. with a live orchestra, so that'll be great. That'll be great. That's when's a good run. When's that? The price. <laughs> when's that?
1: When's that playing?
0: Very end of May. Very Brilliant. end of May. Fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. So that that will be. They've kind enough to send me some tickets for that. So there'll be a bit of a review reviewy thing. I'll probably mention it on here. Actually. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, that's going to be wonderful, but it's not it's not what you're going to. So I'm yeah, wonderful, fantastic. We'll report back yeah. on here when you know and tell us how it was and everything like that because that's yeah. incredible.
1: Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> the 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 other before we talk about your uh, pick, the other bit of Star Wars composing news recently as well was that uh, Nicholas Britell, who you mentioned earlier, is scoring another future Star Wars show called Andor, which is going to be one of the more niche ones. This is around the character of Cassian Andor, who was the main character in Rogue One. Prequel to A New Hope. This <laughs> uh, getting really complicated now. <laughs> Starring Diego Luna, and this is set about five years before he dies, quite, quite <laughs> in basically <a> nuclear explosion. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> so, and God, no, I don't know. This will probably be quite a gritty crime thing because it's Tony Gil- Gilroy who's making this, who would made things like you know Michael Clayton and all that stuff. So, I think it's going to be more of a um, gritty crime thing than a big Jedi's and you know, bounty hunters and stuff. But Britel is fantastic right now. He's on fire. So I'm really excited for what he's going to do in the Star Wars universe.
1: Yeah. Bring, bringing some of that elliptical succession style tonality yeah. to it. Yeah. Really, really, really interesting. Yeah. I can't wait to see all, maybe something from the underground railroad where you use like the, the idea of music as music as sound effects. Yeah. maybe. Maybe. Um, yeah. yeah I'm interesting. i well excited about that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Great. <laughs> anyway, enough Star Wars. We've talked way too much of that, this part podcast. So, um, let's go back in time to your disaster movie score. This is one from John Williams. What have you picked, Sean?
1: So I picked The Poseidon Adventure, which is um, the collaboration between Erwin uh, Allen, Master of Disaster, and and John Williams. Um, So this was released in 1972. Huge, huge box office hit, adapted from the book of the same name, about the ocean liner that is is capsized by the tsunami uh, and the group of survivors that basically have to make their way from the top of the boat to the bottom in order to get out because obviously the whole ship becomes inverted. So... Um, classic movie, I mean, you know, extraordinary cast, you know, Gene Hackman, Shelley Winters, Ernest Borgnine, you know, prob- one of the most famous disaster movies ever made, certainly one of the most famous from the 70s. Probably the best movie that came from the Irwin, Al- Irwin Allen stable, also extended to the Towering Inferno. That was another score I could have picked by John Williams because he wrote the score for that. Um, it was kind of a toss-up between between the two, really. I mean, ultimately, the Irwin Allen um, sort of a d- disaster movie still did did devolve into the swarm with Michael kane in which. Now, I never thought in my life that it would be the bees <laughs> that would betray us or like that. And it's like, okay, what's, like, what's like, like, <laughs> That's
0: a, that? Was really good. You've you've, you've owned <laughs> that one very <laughs> good.
1: Now, I know. So I do the more emotional Michael kane version. Right? Nah. I never thought in my life I, that all the bees would, would rise up uh, and would Master really... Bruce. <laughs> Master Bruce. Yeah. It's the bees. It's in Gotham it's the bees and the bees are the real problem here.
0: <laughs> <What>? <laughs> you know what I'm just you know what I'm imagining now? The the Wicker Man remake with Michael Caine doing the oh not the bees not oh, no. the bees
1: now no, I bloody told you before I told you not the bees uh, it's, just like, it's just like can you imagine like, oh I, mean, I, want I, mean, I, want I want that I want Michael Caine's final movie to be a remake of The Swarm oh yeah, it's just, uh, yeah. Hey, he's
0: done he's done weirder stuff and worse yeah. stuff so who knows it's possible yeah
1: exactly yeah. as long as they bring back Jerry Goldsmith's score for the yeah. proposed remake yeah. of The Swarm
0: Like, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah,
1: yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, the Poseidon Adventure was not the first collaboration between Owen Allen and John Williams. People tend to forget that Allen was actually involved in the original Lost in Space TV series, which Williams scored. So they 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 had they had a grounding, and this presumably this is why John Williams was brought was brought onto the Poseidon Adventure. Um, I have to be honest, not one of Williams's most accessible scores outside the realms of the movie, which is unusual. Yeah, because... I thought that. Did you mm. think that as well?
0: Yeah, yeah, I did because I, I I've seen the film many many moons ago, but it was um but it was going into the score was it felt like revisiting new again in a way, and yes I thought that it's not it's not got his same level of trackable necessarily trackable themes it's it's quite dark yeah. in many ways like uh, it surprised me because yes you can hear Williams S tones in there. But it, it's de- you can definitely tell it's from his pre-Star Wars days, I guess, in some ways. It's not to say all well, his pre-war Star Wars days is not as good because there's some really good stuff. But yeah, there's a definitely there's de- he's definitely on a, in a different register here, which was very interesting.
1: It's very gloomy, isn't it? It's very gloomy and very turbulent, which is what you'd expect given the nature of the story. And um, there is you know it's basically got this kind of churning rumbling kind of trombone string led thing which on the one level suggests that the majesty of the ship then gets turned over it also suggests the incipient heroism or more like the grim determination of the characters i mean determination and grimness i suppose is the key are among the key tenets of the score and that is that theme is actually threaded very intelligently all the way through it's not a particularly attention grabbing theme although weirdly within it i could hear I could definitely hear trace elements of what would eventually become the Force theme in Star Wars. You can definitely hear kind of notation that points towards that. And obviously that was a much more hopeful major key, major minor key collaboration. This is almost exclusively a minor key score. Very rumbling, as you said, very dark. It's, it's a very sort of very turbulent score um it did th- this soundtrack did win the oscar for best original song which was the morning after by al Casher and joel Hershorn. there is a love theme threaded throughout the score, but it's fairly nebulous and it's not among williams's most memorable but i will say that the score works like gangbusters in the film it works brilliantly in the film don't you think it works so well you know, in in terms of just capturing the claustrophobia and the menace of being on this ship that's turned upside down, that that's you know, and it's it's really interesting. It's very it's quite unusual to get a Williams score that only works in its in its in its respective movie. Because even I think even Williams's darker scores have a lot of very, very interesting harmonic registers going on. If you think of something like Nixon or, you know, War of the Worlds, I think War of the Worlds is a seriously underrated John Williams score, and I love that film to bits. I think the film is underrated as well. But, you know, Poseidon Adventure was composed in the same year as Images, um, for which um, Williams was Oscar-nominated. He was also Oscar-nominated for the Poseidon Adventure, but Images is a really, really discordant, creepy sort of experimental score.
0: Robert Altman, yes, Robert images. Altman, yeah. yeah, it's a it was, Susanna it was, York was, film, yeah. yeah,
1: and that's yeah. Got one of Williams's most striking and unusual scores. It's it's a shame because I think he was pegged after Jaws and Star Wars. He was pegged as the blockbuster guy. If you listen to something like like Images, his career could have gone in a completely different, far more experimental direction, much more unusual avant garde. That was a em- really re- really amazing score with um, percussive effects by um, Stomu Yamashita, who's the Japanese percussionist um and you could you can hear the darkness between images in the poseidon adventure is definitely shared um you know unsurprising perhaps given they were both composed in the same year but yeah not not immediately accessible but i think it really fits the film like a glove it really accentuates the dread and the the kind of the imminent catastrophe and tragedy of what happens in the poseidon adventure so yeah that's that's why i picked it
0: yeah good choice good choice yeah interesting we've Here's a clue to mine in the next episode. We've both picked ones involving water. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a clue to what and, my is. And, and it's not be. water
1: world. <laughs> we, talked about, <laughs> we talked about that on Frame to Frame recently, along with Batman and Robins. <laughs> Please go and check it out. So. Yeah, I'm looking forward to listening to that. Yeah, another disaster movie,
0: but for different reasons. Yeah. So... Um, um,
1: <laughs> yeah exactly can i just say you know I, I when i said earlier i couldn't recall um if alberto iglesias was the first spanish oh, yeah. composer the the person breaking who, news da, 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 yeah. the 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 composer of the motorcycle diaries and also Brokeback mountain was gustavo santalala an argentinian composer he won academy awards for both of those scores oh no actually no hang on but tell a lie he won academy awards for Brokeback mountain and babel so um, in which case I take back I take back what I said about the motorcycle diaries earlier that I think that might have been Oscar always, but it didn't win. But regardless, the fact that Brokeback Mountain and Babel got Oscars. No, I mean, absolutely not. I don't agree with either of those choices. Brokeback Mountain is a masterpiece, but the score is nowhere near complex or it or engrossing or multifaceted enough to win an Oscar personally. But there we go. So,
0: yeah, mm, yeah, I, I can't even remember that one to be honest. Interesting, interesting, yeah. Oh, I'm glad we, yeah, good. I'm glad we know that. Cool, cool, cool. Mm. So, we've got two more scores to talk about before we uh, take a break for part one and then we come back next week. So, uh, the next one up is for a film that came out and basically I think just died on the table straight away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't survive um, the autopsy <laughs> no <laughs> basically um this one is from a film called marry me with uh j-lo and owen wilson um
1: <laughs> the, the, which... the fact the fact that we're even saying the phrase j-lo it's like i feel like i'm back in 2001 or something. i know like, yeah, it's really weird yeah i know
0: i know it's bizarre isn't it like <laughs> and in this i mean it sounds i mean i i would I'm sure you've listened to this, but I would point anyone towards the Mark Kermode review on yeah. the Kermode and Mayo show about Marry Me because it's <laughs> hilarious. It is one of his classic, like, what is this? What even is this film? It, it, it's, it sounds quite ridiculous. It's one of those, It is. it really is JLo going back to the made in Manhattan days here, isn't it? It's a, it's a real shame because, and the score is by John Debney, and we'll come to that in a minute, but I just, I, I haven't seen the film. Now, I'm sure it'll have its fans. I'm sure there were people out there who like it. But I just think it's a shame that after Hustlers, which was yeah. a genuinely great movie, she's going back to doing this kind of shit again. Like and I'm like, what <laughs> why? Why? <laughs> like it's 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 almost it's like if Matthew McConaughey just went back to making, you know. The wedding fancier, or whatever he did back in the day. <laughs> wedding, wedding I don't know. <laughs> it's probably not an actual title, but you know, he's, all those. He's
1: just, he's just hanging around the edge of the ballroom, watching. him, goes, "All right, all right, all right." Like, he's yeah. just like watching people. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, then
0: he rock Then Kate Hudson rocks up, and he ends yeah, up, like, yeah. you know, uh,
1: and, and he leans on her. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah, 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 Just why? What are you doing, J Lo? You had the opportunity to really transform. Uh, anyway, like, but. but what about the score like this is john john debney obviously he's he's like a really talented composer he's done some great stuff he's not one of the big giant well-known ones necessarily but he's consistently pretty good i think john debney so what do you make of his score for marry me
1: um, just before I get into that, the whole J-Lo thing, I can only assume that the reason why she's fallen back on this kind of movie is because I think she wasn't Oscar-nominated for Hustlers, was she? And everyone was expecting her to be. I'm pretty yeah, sure she I wasn't so. nominated for that, mm. which was quite amazing. I, was, I thought she was going to get a lock for Best Supporting Actress, but she didn't. Maybe she was quite understandably annoyed by that because it was a brilliant performance in a great movie. Maybe that's why she's fallen back on this kind of flim-flam. But, I mean, um, in, in terms of the score, I mean, yeah, John John Debney is very, very ubiquitous and very chameleonic. He blends he blends in with a lot of different genres. He's scored a lot of terrible movies. I mean, he's really talented. He's scored a lot of bad, bad films. Um, every now and then, he does rise up above the flotsam and the jetsam. You think of Cutthroat Island, which is an extraordinary score. I mean, one of the greatest... Pirate scores of all time. You think it really picks up the mantle from Eric Wolfgang Korngold, but really advanced it with this much more modernistic, aggressive orchestral technique. Really, really rollicking and really exciting. You think of something like The Passion of the Christ, which John Debney was Oscar nominated. Beautiful, a uh, religioso, very evocative score for the Mel Gibson film um he's done a lot of scores i think unfortunately are quite anonymous and have been attached to not very good movies um but then again on the other hand he did do the jungle book the remake of the jungle book for john favreau which is a terrific score but i think it's kind of with debney he often sounds like other people this is what i mean by chameleonic i don't mean this is a bad thing incidentally i mean the ability to adopt the different idioms of different composers is actually probably a very very challenging thing to do and he pulls it off with aplomb and in The Jungle Book, he was able to fashion a score that was both his own score, but also sounded like the score for George Bruns, original score for the Disney animation from the 60s. So it's a question of when you come to certain John Debney scores, do they actually have their own personality or do they just sound like other things? I mean, this Marry Me could be any any generic sort of romantic score, really. It's perfectly well orchestrated. It's perfectly harmonic. It's perfectly pleasant. But... You know, you've got to think Alan Silvestri was doing these kind of things, ten a penny in the late nine in late nineties, early two thousands. I mean, again, J Lo, um, Alan Silvestri scored made in Manhattan. So you yeah, know, yeah. this score this score could have basically tinkled its way out of in one JLo movie and just landed in this one. So it it i I mean, I'm not I'm not denying that the ability to come up with something harmonically pleasant is easy. Clearly it's not easy, that's really, really difficult. Even for a film as forgettable as this, clearly there is a real level of tonal and musical sophistication that's needed even for fairly crass you know romantic material but i don't know how memorable it is really um i don't know how distinctive it is um i think john debney has done some very very fine comedy scores before um i do like john debney when he is in the action you know the action fantasy genre i think that's probably the area at which he excels the best really but um yeah your your thoughts on it
0: yeah it was it was it was okay like it wasn't like awful it was fair it was fairly sort of background plinky plonky you know boom kind of stuff at points but then you do get like a few nice strings in there and things like this it, it, it was it was okay it just it just it very much it, i suppose it probably it might well fit the movie quite well i guess i uh, i won't lie i'm probably not gonna watch marry me <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, um, uh, so I, I shouldn't really knock it because I'm not going to watch it, and it might well be very good. It might well be better than, but I, I'd be surprised. So it might well fit the movie, great if it does, but it wouldn't be one I'd revisit. I had it on the back; it ended up becoming very background, you know, when I was listening to it, going, "Oh yeah, it's all right, yeah, yeah." But I, I got the gist within about the first five tracks, I'd guess that what this was. I mean, and that, that, and that was enough,
1: you know I mean, you know, the movie's a fairy tale you know, J-Lo plays a musician who wants to live stream her wedding, she then outs her cheating boyfriend on stage and then she picks um, Owen Wilson, wow from the, from the crowd, you know um, <laughs> and she decides to marry him you know, it's just like um, so you know, it's it's exactly the kind of fluffy romantic score that you would expect for that kind of conceit, you know, as in the conceit that would never, ever, 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 ever happen in real life, ever. Mm. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a J-Lo movie. So the score exactly yeah. falls in with that. You know, the score does what it's supposed to do, which ultimately is one of the fundamental tenets of film music. You know, you're not you're not going to get a really interesting avant-garde jazz score for, for
0: no. a film <laughs> like this. Imagine, think... <laughs> maybe, maybe when Matthew McConaughey does make the wedding fancier, <laughs> we might get one <laughs> maybe
1: I mean that would just be really really interesting I mean you know you mentioned Matthew McConaughey I mean he has kind of he has recently kind of lapsed back into that kind of nonsense I mean did you see the film Serenity Actually, did you yeah. see Serenity oh, God, for a few years I ago? did I mean honestly I, I think we wow. talked about
0: that we, I'm sure we talked about that on this podcast at some point way you, back in we, the day
1: because Ben Woolfish did the score for it didn't he yeah, and I remember thinking I think that, we did. It, that it wasn't it wasn't one of Benjamin Woolfish's more striking efforts but looking at the film it's not hard to see why the music wasn't all that interesting (laughs) because it's like what on earth is happening here like you know and it's like the twist I'm like yeah I know what's going on within the first 30 seconds of the movie I know exactly what's happening and you know it's just like there's nothing surprising about that but well the stupidity is surprising (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I don't think there's
0: anything quite that weird and daft in in Me*. by the sound of it I think it's you know it's just it's not for us it's maybe yeah. not for us, Sean, you know, and that's yeah. okay. Finally then, before we take a break for the end of part 1, uh let's do The Eyes of Tammy Faye, which is the uh the new uh film uh, directed by Michael Showwater, starring Jessica Chastain. She's been nominated for an Oscar for this, I believe, as uh, Tammy Faye, I'm going to guess it's Baker, it's got a funny sp- spelling. She's a she was a televangelist in America. So this this is and it's about her marriage to a, a husband played by Andrew Garfield. Good cast. It's obviously about an area that, as two Brits, is going to be way beyond what we really understand. All this American televangelism stuff is nuts in it, really. So yeah. it's 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 going to be it's a very American centred film in many ways. I haven't seen it. it. It came out in cinemas, but it just was gone, like straight away, just disappeared. They might as well just put this on on a streamer, really. I don't really. I don't know if many people went to see it oh, the
1: I'm of, really surprised they put this out theatrically in this country yeah. if ever there was a Disney distributed movie that was destined to right. go onto the star platform on Disney Plus this was it and they put it out theatrically it's, I'm like,
0: well it's <laughs> dropping it's dropping on there I'm sure it's towards the end of March it's actually coming out on, on Disney Plus anyway yeah. so it's like well why, why bother like, yeah. just, put, just stick it on there so I, I, I will watch it I'm quite looking forward to seeing it because she's great I love her Andrew Garfield's always good value it could be very interesting Uh, and it has a score by Theodore Shapiro he's a good composer he's done quite a lot of good stuff um, over the last few years so what did you make of this you haven't seen the film I don't think have you but what did you make of the score
1: yeah I haven't seen the film to be honest like you said I've got no interest in the subject matter because as you say as a Brit this means nothing to me we don't really have televangelists over here I'm not particularly interested in the story although the actors are, are fabulous the score is really good. I mean, again, you know, as as ever, I have to detach it from the context because I haven't seen the movie, so I have to appreciate the score as a standalone thing. I'll have to point that out. But Theodore Shapiro is really underrated, and I think not unlike John Debney, Theodore Shapiro finds himself attached to quite a lot of comedy, comedy movies in which his music doesn't necessarily get the attention that it deserves. That said... He is much more versatile than, I mean, I went back through Theodore Shapiro's um, resume. I mean, he's done things like Trumbo, you know, the the Oscar-nominated Brian Cranston biopic. Um, he did Captain Underpants, which had a wonderful score. The animated yeah. movie, there's a brilliant that was score, and it's it? So great. Mm. He also did like Karen Kosama's The Invitation, which is a really weird, like broiling, claustrophobic oh, that, dinner party movie. Did, great have, you, have you heard soul. that one? yeah it is in there it's really untrated it is
0: it's really good and and actually on the subject of that he also scored uh the pilot for yellow jackets the new tv show which was directed by karen Kasama, which is a fantastic Ah. show um which i'm doing a podcast on episode by episode actually called no book club which is on we made this brilliant new show it might well be the new phenomenon i hope it is and karen Kasama directed the pilot and he scored the pilot for that so yeah and that's Similar lines, I think, really to the invitation. So yeah, he's he's quite versatile, isn't he?
1: Is he scoring the Yellow Jacket series, or is he only done the pilot? No,
0: just the pilot, I think. Just
1: the pilot, yeah, yeah. He is. He's. I mean, he. I mean, arguably, the best thing about the much reviled Ghostbusters twenty sixteen Paul Feig movie was Theodore Shapiro's score, which is a proper full on orchestral choral score, much much better than than the movie. I think. You know, it's it's interesting with comedy movies, isn't it? Because comedy scores I think tend to get overlooked because I think you know if if a comedy score works people won't notice it if it's too forced people will notice and go oh that music was really annoying in that comedy movie it, the music was compelling me to laugh it was kind of trying to tickle my funny bones so Comedy scores are very, very hard to get right, and they're also, its very, very hard to draw attention to a comedy score in the right way. I mean, I suppose unless the, the fabric of, of the film is so invites music that is so peculiar. I mean, you think of things like Jerry Goldsmith and Gremlins or the Burbs, in which you have that orchestral electronic mix, which Jerry Goldsmith obviously pioneered and you know really honed. But not all comedy movies invite that kind of approach. But, I mean, on on the subject of the eyes of Tammy Faye, it, I, I was really impressed with this. I mean, again, not knowing, not having seen the film and only knowing a bare minimum about the story, it's clearly got, there's clearly an air of melancholy about, there's a main piano theme, presumably for Jessica Chastain's character, which does have a kind of sweetness, but I think it's got a genuine air of tragedy to it, the notation and the tonality of it's got tragedy to it. There is also a very subtle use of choir, which has a suitably evangelical kind of holy tone to it which I think those two facets are threaded together very very well and the idea that she clearly thought that she based on what I've heard in the score, she thought she was imbued with a kind of purpose and a message to deliver to people via them via the means of commercial television that's where the irony comes in obviously you know you pre-package religion for a price and I think the score appears to get that kind of contradictory melancholy quasi-evangelical mix actually really really well based on what it seems to be very intuitive to me and it's very melodic and it's poignant and i think it's done with a sense of humor but also with a sense of sadness as well um what what did what did you what did you make of it
0: yeah i liked it i I thought it was it was sad it it was it had a it was very soft and calming piece you know unlike some of the bigger things he's done in the past it has that religious sense, you know. it Has a certain level of ascent, I think, in in some of the tones and some of the the the, the music. I, I yeah, I, I liked it. I don't know if it's necessarily one that is re- super listenable on repeat, but I and I but I think it will fit the film quite well. Definitely, I think when I watch that, I think it will work in the context of the movie very well. But it was okay, yeah, it was all right. It was all right. It was interesting. And I think it's, it's a, a, another good example of, 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 like I said, that versatility and the different kind of things he can do. So yeah, I, I liked it.
1: And one of the things I will say is there's never any suggestion in the music that, that Theodore Shapiro is mocking the main character. I mean, clearly that probably no, wouldn't, the, no. the music wouldn't then be in lockstep with the dramatic impetus of the movie, but the, the music is very sincere and I think it, it's clearly doing what film music is meant to do. It's meant to get under the skin of the central character. Like, right, what are the central tenets of this main character? She obviously believed in what she was doing, but that belief was ultimately misguided and then obviously it all goes, it all goes badly wrong and I think the score appears to get to get that very very well i think theodore shapiro is very underrated actually i think you know it's a shame because the movies to which he's attached he doesn't get a lot of attention for which 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 is a pity i think and you know in this country at least the eyes of tammy faye has sunk without a trace really um and it's pretty much sunk without a trace in america actually i think it bombed it bombed out in america as well it didn't do very well which is surprising given the subject matter but there we go thing
0: maybe people are sick of televangelists over there yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah maybe. Um, maybe i don't know it, it it makes you wonder it makes you wonder i think it'll definitely it, it, given it's coming on disney plus i think it'll definitely get more viewers there for sure and and as it gets close to the oscars as well i think you'll skip you'll, it'll be one of those people are checking out because of chastain uh, being nominated so yeah it's um i'll look forward to seeing it yeah i'm curious and seeing how the score works in uh in tandem with it yeah so um so yeah, that's the end of then part one. We'll um we'll take a break there. We'll come back next week and we'll give you uh, part two in which we'll be talking about um, uh, scores like Uncharted, the the new Uncharted movie. Uh, we're talking about Cyrano as well, the new um, musical, and uh, Kenneth Branagh's Death on the Nile as well. So uh, <laughs> uh, and a few others as, uh, along the way. Um, We'd we'll, we'll also do my disaster movie pick, and then we'll we'll talk about what we think our best score of the month is each. So um. So, yeah, uh, thanks for joining us this week uh, for another episode. Uh, remember, as we have mentioned, we're part of the We Made This podcast network. Please subscribe to Between the Notes. Give us a five-star rating and review if you can on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us uh, with the with the podcast. Also, you can review on Spotify if that's more your jam as well now. Uh, and if you want, or at least rate on Spotify, I think. And if you want to help out our network, please consider supporting us on Patreon and helping us uh, fund the network and keep all these podcasts coming if you go to patreon.com forward slash We Made This. But film and TV music is not all we're discussing, so we'll give you a taste of what you might have missed out on on the network in a moment. But uh, until we're back for the next episode, stay safe and well until we see you next time discussing the music of film and television between the notes. Elsewhere on We Made This. The Way. A Star Wars podcast. Well, trying yeah. to have him be like a stoic kind of unflinching character. In the end, he just seems like he doesn't care or want anything.
1: Yeah, it goes back to what we've said in past episodes, where they just feel too indifferent to their own stories yeah. for for us to like. I can't care for them. <laughs> yeah, I can't invest in a story more than the goddamn characters on the screen aren't seem invested in the story. So, give me something, guys.
0: Gotham University, a Batman podcast. But you don't owe this planet a thing. And I thought that was a perfect speech to give a man who is so conflicted with his duality, you know, between being an
1: alien from another race that could wipe out the entire planet, or be a man who just wants to live. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You know, um, Christopher Reeve was very much uh, truth, justice, the American way. But Henry Cavill is much more about it's, it's less the American way and much more about truth and much more about justice, which is more important than just the American way. Because the American way, you know, back in the 60s and the 70s, yeah, you know, that, that, that was then. But this is now now. And we need a Superman for us.
0: Frame to frame. So we mentioned it won an Academy Award for Best Makeup. It's the only
1: Oscar won by a film that's been directed by David Cronenberg to date. Pretty staggering. I mean... I mean, that, that, that's amazing. It Yeah, it's it's astounding, but, you know... I mean, let, let me put it this way. Gwyneth Paltrow has as many Oscars as David Cronenberg. That's just wrong in every sense of the word. Um, yeah, because... but you can't get a
0: candle that smells like David Cronenberg's... No, wait, I'm not going to get that. Um... <sighs> Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network. Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at Sean022. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes On iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker where the show is part of the We Made This podcast network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening.